On the morning of 9-11, there were more than 4,000 aircraft in our nation's airspace, with hundreds more inbound from other countries. After initial hijack attacks, the Federal Aviation Administration's National Operations Manager in Virginia began to systematically close the country's airspace, beginning with a Tier 1 ground stop, which covered New York, Boston, Cleveland, and Washington, D.C. We're shutting the airplanes down. We're not letting anyone go right now. Okay. That's a good move. Uh, we're waiting to hear from security. We'll put a ground stop on everything. Uh, there's a second plane that just hit the World Trade Center. Stop all departures out of the center, please. So yeah, that's what we're doing. At 9.45 a.m. Eastern Time, all commercial aircraft were grounded, and those flights already airborne were ordered to land. Military jets were given permission to shoot down any aircraft whose pilot did not acknowledge contact. It was the first time in history a complete airspace closure had been ordered. This is what I foresee that we probably need to do. We need to talk to FAA. We need to tell them if this stuff's going to keep on going, we need to take those fighters, put them over Manhattan. Okay? Sir. That's the best thing. That's the best play right now. So, coordinate with the FAA. Tell them if there's more out there, which we don't know, tell Foxy to scramble Langley, send them in the same location. Battle, battle, battle stations or scramble? Battle stations only, Langley. Battle okay, this is, uh, who's up there? Langley. Okay, you're listening? Battle. What I told the FD so far, we need to get those fighters screwed over Manhattan because we don't know how many guys are out of park. Could be three, two, could be more. This is 9-11, two decades later. I'm Steve Gregory in Los Angeles. On the morning of 9-11, air traffic controller Bart Avery was headed into work. It's in Palmdale, California. Um, it's about a 10-minute drive from my house. That particular morning, um, for whatever reason, I didn't listen to the news in the morning. I didn't listen to the radio on the, on the way in. Um, so the first thing I noticed that was a little unusual was the security guard who I'd known for 15 years made me stop my car and actually look at my ID badge, which normally she, she would have just waved me in. I didn't think a whole lot of it until I walked in the building and uh, just saw the shock of people running around screaming. The only thing I could think of was that it must have, we must have had a horrific accident somewhere in our airspace. When did you know the scope of what was going on? So <clears throat> I walked up to my friend Dave and asked him what was going on, and he just gave me this crazy look like, you don't know what happened? And I said, well, no, I just got in here a few minutes ago. This was just before 6 o'clock. So the first plane had already hit. At that point, we just started speculating it had to have been a small aircraft. There's no way uh, an airliner would have crashed into the World Trade Center. There's, you know, a pilot's not going to do that, and a hijacker's not going to do that. So we just assumed that it was one plane. But apparently, back east, what I've gathered over the last 24 hours, kind of re-listening to some of the tapes, was that they did know that American 11 was hijacked, and they did know that American 11 was the aircraft that hit the World Trade Center, but nobody else knew it out on the West Coast for sure. So once you were made aware of the sort of the gravity of the situation, what were next steps? Well, shortly after six is when the second plane hit. And then once we saw that or heard about that, we knew that it was a terrorist attack. It just was too much of a coincidence that two airplanes would do that. And uh, we started to, um, on our own, talk about stop ground stopping all the aircraft in LA Center's airspace. And the big airports would be LAX, of course, Las Vegas, San Diego, Burbank, and Ontario. Within about 30 minutes, we got a call from the what's called the command center back in Herndon, Virginia. And they basically said, every airplane has to land. Every airplane is going to stop. And that's when I would say all hell broke loose because it was 
just something we had never anticipated. It was craziness. And the pilots were, a lot of them did not know what was going on. And there were some very interesting conversations with these pilots. Like, for example, an airplane that had taken off from LAX 20 minutes prior to this shutdown, probably halfway to Las Vegas was now being, let's say going to London, was now being told to land in Las Vegas. And the pilots that didn't know what was going on were arguing basically like, why, why am I landing in Las Vegas? Within probably five or 10 minutes, everybody got the word through their, their uh, company that can communicate to the flight deck. And uh, everybody was cooperative. Everybody was just going along with the plan. What kind of complicates things that a lot of people don't realize is that if you're on a flight of more than four or five hours, you've got to dump fuel before you can just go land an aircraft. So we had hundreds of aircraft that had to dump fuel, and um, the coordination on that was very complex because we had to vector airplanes away from populated areas to make that happen. How many planes are we talking about, Bart? So there were 4,000 aircraft roughly in the United States, and yeah, we had had a lot of aircraft that that were either – that had just taken off or that were coming from, let's say, across the Pacific Ocean, from Europe, uh, up through Mexico – What we had to do with all the airplanes in the air that were coming towards us is not allow any aircraft coming from Canada or from Mexico. We we just stopped all those aircraft from coming into U.S. airspace. The only airplanes that we couldn't divert were the ones coming from, say, Hawaii, because there's no place for them to land other than, you know, the West Coast somewhere. Although some of those airplanes I know were diverted up into Alaska, which we thought at the time made more sense than trying to not knowing, you know, which airplane could have a terrorist and which one doesn't. But within an hour, um, we have a, we have a uh, in traffic management, we have a huge television screen that shows every airplane in the United States. And like I said, I believe there were about 4,000 within an hour or so, almost every single one of those planes had just disappeared. It was, they were all on the ground. Just shocking to see that. The only airplanes that were left was Air Force One and – uh, all over the country, there were F-16s that were orbiting around the the big, the major cities. The other thing that was very spooky was we have these things called ghost targets. And a ghost target is when an aircraft loses its transponder, the the computer projects based on its, you know, its route that it has, its altitude, and its, and its last known ground speed. And it, and, it, and it keeps this data block kind of floating. And so I believe it was the aircraft that hit the Pentagon. They, I don't think they realized for a while that that aircraft had been lost. And so here in the, out in the Midwest, we see this ghost target just ominously coming towards the West Coast. And uh, that, that gave us a big chill for quite a while until later on they figured out that that was just a ghost target. Obviously, we know now Twin Towers were hit, Pentagon was hit, and then the plane that went down in Pennsylvania, it had its target. I've always known here on the West Coast that Los Angeles is always a very vulnerable target. That had to have been going through your mind, too, because you had L.A., you've got San Francisco. Along the western seaboard, you got a lot of potential there. Absolutely. The other thing, too, is that 20 years later, we look back, we know all the facts, pretty much of what happened. But, you know, within 30 minutes to an hour after that, that those first planes hit, nobody knew what was going on. For all we knew, there was 100 planes that had terrorists on them. Right. And, and they may have been coming from, you know, Japan coming into L.A., and we had to take those airplanes. And it, it was scary. Until every airplane was on the ground and we had resolved that ghost target issue, it was, it was very scary to, to 
look at that. You were talking about all of the planes that had to dump fuel, and you had to, as you say, vector them away from populated areas. How does one go about dumping that much fuel from the sky? Where do they dump it at? They actually dump it over land. My understanding is that if, if you're up high enough, it just dissipates before it actually hits the ground. But some of those aircraft were down, you know, relatively low. And so we had to take them out kind of out in the middle, maybe out in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. And out in the desert? Us, like sure, out in the desert. sure, out just away from populated areas. But obviously, that's not a good thing to have fuel dumping down on over downtown L.A., et cetera. Sure. So they knew they were having to dump it for the purpose of landing. So it would have been a very last-minute thing, you know, on their part to – but it's also a very standard thing when, a, when an airplane declares an emergency, which happens all the time. You know, they lose an engine or whatnot. The first thing that the pilot tells the air traffic controllers is, hey, we have to dump fuel right now. And, you know, if they're out over the ocean, just taking off from LAX, no big deal. They'll just dump it out, out over the ocean. And it doesn't take that long, maybe 15 or 20 minutes. to. And they know how much fuel to dump where they're okay to land the aircraft. The reason they do it is because of the weight of the aircraft. They can't safely land an aircraft that's got you know, half a million pounds of fuel on board, or I'm not sure how much. That's probably an exaggeration, but a lot of weight is in that fuel. How many airports were in your jurisdiction? Las Vegas, all the, all the SoCal airports, um, Bakersfield to the, to kind of the Northwest. I mean, Uh, that includes like the major airports and the smaller, the municipal airports as well. Correct. Every, every airport was. So how many runways do you think you were overseeing? Over 100. Over 100. And then did you have situations where you had like 757s and other large commercial carriers having to land in on runways they were not accustomed to? No. We are well aware of which airports can, you know, because we are trained in emergency procedures where an aircraft is in distress and has to land at the nearest airport. And we're obviously not going to let a 747 try to land at Whiteman Airport. I think Las Vegas actually bore most of the brunt mm. because – a lot of our traffic flow goes up towards Las Vegas area. Any flight that's going to Europe, to the most of the East Coast uh, airports, are going to go right over Las Vegas. And looking back on it, the guys and gals on the ground in Las Vegas must have just had a nightmare on their hands because not only could no airplanes depart Las Vegas, all these airplanes ha- were landing in Las Vegas. And God knows where they were parking all those airplanes. But we, my guess is we put... 50 to 100 airplanes down in Las Vegas. And you did all that in an hour? In an hour. So then what? We, like probably every American, were in just shock. Uh, we were just speechless. We, I remember looking at my radar scope and thinking, I have never seen a blank radar scope in my life. I mean, I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of square miles that we control. Just a fighter jet or two and just no airplanes. And uh, I think we just tried to talk it out, make, try to make sense of it. At that point, probably every controller in our facility, and there's about, a, a, on shift that morning, there were well over 100 controllers. And we were popping in and out of the TV room just try to, to try to pick up snippets of what was going on. And um, you just couldn't make sense of it. It was just something that just did not compute in our minds. As, as air traffic controllers, uh, you're never trained for something like that. It's just it's absolute craziness what we saw that morning. Interesting, though, you are trained to handle worst-case scenarios, though, because you're dealing with people's lives all the time. But on something on this kind of scale, I'm sure it's like many others in the role, get the job done first, process it later. Correct. It's, it's something that's ingrained in us. You know, we're, you know, we all 
act like we're we're macho and you know we 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 see people unfortunately uh, die in aircraft accidents. Um, for example, about a year and a half before 9/11, I I was working the day that Alaska 261 crashed in the Pacific Ocean. I wasn't controlling the plane, but I was at a scope nearby and I was watching the data block and I watched how fast that aircraft descended at, at the end and I, I just I was shaking when I got off the sector, you know, but but you're cool and you're calm. If you listen to the controller's voices that were dealing with 9/11, um, so proud of those folks, you know, just the way they did their job. But I guarantee you, they were shaking and probably sobbing, you know, within an hour of, of what. And, and a lot of us were just trying to deal with it. And you know, there's no grief counselors to come around. And you're just you're just on your own. It, looking back on it, um, boy, it was it's just horrific what we saw. How do you balance with what you were looking at on the scope, what you were seeing on the television, and kind of what you were discussing amongst yourselves? Well, air traffic controllers always want to try to know everything that's going on. And so we were just, you know, digging out pieces of information we could find on on the news or hear, hearing what other controllers, you know, theories were. And um, it's, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't even know how to answer that question. It's just... It was tough. It's hard for me to even talk about this. It's just all coming back and just a horrible situation. Well, even 20 years later, what you're doing was a very visual job and a very visceral job. So even 20 years later, does it feel like it was yesterday? It does. It does, especially, you know, going back and listening to some of the tapes. It just brought back bad memories, and it seemed like it was not 20 years ago. It seemed like it was very recent. So you were talking about when the scopes were clear, you said, other than military. You were listening. Did you get to hear the orders coming from your headquarters about the permission to shoot down commercial aircraft if they didn't acknowledge? No, I I don't recall ever hearing that. And I think it's because uh, we were scrambling so hard to get all these aircraft on the ground. And in our particular airspace, LA Center, we had no aircraft in the air. So there was... That was kind of a moot point for as far as we're concerned. I know that I know that happened, but it never got down to our level. That must have been pretty disturbing to see the only dots on your scope were military. Correct. Do you remember about how many? Um, I remember that they were all F-16s. Um, they were all scrambled from some of the SoCal uh, military bases. And at any given time, there were they were always in the air. They were in the air 24-7 probably four or five in the Southern California area. That's got to be pretty spooky. Very spooky. It's, I mean, it felt like the end of the world, to be honest with you. We didn't know, I didn't know if I was going to have a job. I didn't know. It just seemed like the world was coming to an end. It was that horrific. Were there any specific challenges on getting a plane to the ground where there was just not enough room or a pilot didn't know what they were doing or? Yes. um, All the planes got to the ground safely. Um, Some of the foreign air carriers, for example, English is not their first language, and even in a normal situation, uh, sometimes there's a communication problem there. So those would have been the flights that probably would have been the most difficult to handle. I can't think of any specific things that I saw, but it just seemed like uh, once everybody was on board with what was going on, it was handled very well, and there weren't really any difficult situations that I'm aware of. There, There had to be a lot of disbelief. And then I remember hearing some chatter saying, is this a drill? And right. then, or is this real? Right. That, that did happen too. Um, and, and getting pilots to sign on. That's true. That's, I didn't thought of that, but, uh, 
I'm sure some of those pilots were wondering if uh, somebody came into our place and right. stole the mics. But I think pilots know when they're talking to an air, a real air traffic controller. Um, there's just a, a way we speak, a way we communicate. And I think they would have been suspicious if if something weird like that had happened. So I, I, I really don't think for very long they, they believe that this was any sort of a hoax or a drill. You don't, you don't tell a guy going to London that you're going to land in Las Vegas right now because just trust me, you have to land in Las Vegas. You're just going to do it. And the other thing, too, is pilots are just trained to, to listen to us. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit of an ego trip being an air traffic controller because you're telling these guys what, exactly what to do. So now the planes are on the ground. You're kind of making sense of all of this. What happens next? I mean, how long was it like this? So that, that whole first day, uh, we were just all in a daze. We were, we were sitting there. I don't know why we were sitting at our sectors, but I just remember sitting. And describe what a sector is? Sure. A sector is um, a specific spe- piece of airspace that a particular controller controls. And at LA Center, I believe there were about. Uh, it's your air cubicle. It's like an air cubicle, yeah. and it's literally like this geographic area. And once it, once that airplane crosses this line, he's now in the next sector. And, I see. And we do what's called shipping the aircraft. We change the frequency and tell him, okay, now you're going to talk to sector three over mm-hmm. here. I'm sector four. See you later. So, just silence, uh, staring at scopes, wondering what's 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 going to happen next. The next day, when we all came in, for some odd reason, they didn't really cut the staffing down. They just everybody just came back into work the next day. And once again, we just sat in front of blank radar scopes. And um, so one of the things that happened to me that really to this day, 20 years later, um, um, just really affected me bad. Um, so I was in traffic management on, a, I think it was day three, and the, the ground stop was still in effect. There were just the F-16s in the air. And I get a call from um, a pilot on the ground in Lake Havasu. And he's a lifeguard flight. And um, he told me that, um, look, he's got a very sick passenger on board. He needs to get this passenger to Las Vegas immediately. And um, lifeguard flights are top priority. The only one above them really is an emergency or uh, Air Force One. It's, it's just like an ambulance going down the street. You, everybody moves out of the way. So this guy probably could have been in Las Vegas within 20 minutes. I believe it was a Learjet. And um, I told him, I said, look, I... I'm going to call Virginia and ask, but I, I'm almost positive the, the answer for you, unfortunately, is going to be no, but I'll call you back. So I called Virginia, um, and the guy said, you know, I don't think so, but let me, let me see what, what we're doing with these lifeguard flights. And I waited. I called the guy back in Havasu, the pilot. I told him, look, I'm still waiting. I'm so sorry. Um, hang, in, hang in there for me. And about a half hour went by, and I remember this guy calls me back, and it's chilling what he said to me. He just says, um, hey, um, Bart, just disregard. We lost our passenger. And looking back on it, there's nothing we could have done. Um, also, at any given time in LA Center airspace, for example, there's probably one or two lifeguard flights an hour that are, that are you know, going from place to place, Most in most cases, I believe, taking critically injured people to hospitals. And so for those few days that the airspace was shut down, God knows how many people probably lost their lives. It's just another casualty of 9-11. I didn't even think about that. So that the ground stop impacted medical transport. Absolutely. Nobody was in the air except for those F-16s. When did it finally start to open up? You know, it, 
as I recall, it was about four, day four or five that they they slowly started to kind of open it up. And one of the things that struck me as kind of odd was that one of the early uh, restrictions that was lifted um, was on um, crop dusters. And I thought, okay, crop dusters. Um, how about lifeguard flights too? I believe lifeguard flights were also released pretty early on. But uh, yeah, apparently crop, du- crop dusters are pretty vital to our country's crops and they weren't allowed to fly for three or four days. And I found that interesting. But I think, I think probably on day five, we were kind of back to normal. But of course, there were not a lot of airplanes in the air for a long time after 9-11. It just, it just took a, a long time to kind of get back to normal. How many years after that did you continue to work? I retired in 2007, so about six, six oh, years after okay. that. So looking back on it now, and as, as someone who travels, still travels today, when you go through TSA and you go through all of the, the new security measures as a result of 9-11, do you feel safer traveling? Um, yes, I, I, I do. I always thank those TSA agents. I, I, I look them in the eye and I say, thank you for your service, because I think they have a really tough job. And But I think that's kind of the only way to do this anymore. I mean, we have to really kind of check every single person that's getting on an aircraft so it never happens again. So I, I think definitely think things are a lot safer since 9-11. How about as a country? Do you think the country is a lot safer? Well, um, that's a whole other discussion. Um, I, I'm, starting, I'm starting to wonder if we're safer or not now, um, with some of the things that are going on. Um, doesn't make sense that people seem to be, just be able to willy-nilly come into the country um, unchecked. I, I don't know how safe that is. I don't think that's safe, but um, that's way above my pay grade. Coming up in episode three. Our goal was to be unpredictable. We didn't want the bad guys to be able to game the system. The TSA is born. 9-11, Two Decades Later, is produced by Steve Gregory and Jacob Gonzalez and is a production of the KFI News Department for iHeartMedia Los Angeles and the iHeart Podcast Network. The views expressed are strictly those of the guests and not necessarily the hosts or employees of iHeartMedia. Media.